Hello and welcome to the Honest Property Investment Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also the founder of NC Real Estate, which is my firm of surveyors, which helps commercial and mixed-use property investors build commercial mixed-use property portfolios, which completely align with their goals. If you want to hear more about that, head on over to ncrealestate.co.uk, where you will find absolutely everything we do. This week, there is so much going on, so much going on. I've got a lot to go through with you, things that are important in the market. But first, as always, I thought I'd start up with a little bit of a portfolio update from my side, which actually, touch wood, there's not that much to report. Things are going swimmingly. And I'm going to say that and then tomorrow, like a ceiling is going to come through or something, you know, the norm. Um, but for the first time in a long time, my serviced accommodation in Bath has had three months of 99% occupancy on Airbnb, which has been phenomenal since all the restrictions were lifted in the UK. My Airbnb has just been solidly booked. Now, I think I may have just lost myself super host status. And the reason being is that when I was in the hospital giving birth to Harry, I didn't reply to a couple of booking inquiries. So because of that, I think I lost my super host, but that's okay. Over the next six months, I'll just build it back up. Nothing major, nothing I can do about it. What am I going to do in the middle of having a baby? Oh, wait, hold on a second. One second. I am just going to answer these Airbnb inquiries. Oh, don't give me any drugs just yet. I'm just going to answer the Airbnb inquiries. Well, don't hand me my son just yet. Exactly. Basically, the long and short of it is there was nothing I could do about it. And I'm not going to lose sleep over it either. It hasn't stopped the number of bookings that I have got. Um, so I think if you're listening, you're going to be like, Natasha, what is the success to your service accommodation and having 99% occupancy? Um, I was thinking about this myself. Number one, it has been on Airbnb since 2016. So what we're in, we're on six years of doing it. So I've got six years of reviews for this one property and it's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reviews and really good reviews as well. And occasionally there are a couple of bad reviews. For example, uh, just before COVID, my shower broke and the guests then decided to take it upon themselves to fix it. They pulled it off the wall. They subsequently got an electric shock and they left me a bad review. Um, Airbnb said that that was my maintenance problem. I mean, okay, we could have fixed a broken shower. I can't fix a shower that's come off the wall. So I had to shut for a couple of weeks and completely redo the bathroom, which absolutely fine. It needed doing anyway. Um, and I have another bad review from when the washing machine leaked. And anything else? Oh, occasionally noise complaints because this apartment is the very center of Bath. So weekends when the clubs kick out, you do um, 
get noise, although it was more so before COVID, since COVID when all the clubs shut, we didn't have any complaints about noise whatsoever. And I haven't really had complaints about noise since. So I wonder if the um, local clubs have um, either shut down because of COVID or maybe not operating at high occupancy anymore. I don't know. I've not looked into that. But um, those were the things which means that you know, people can look through and they can see that there are highs and lows there. And I think that's a more real experience. I don't know about you, but when I look at Airbnb reviews, I'm almost a little bit concerned if there aren't any, you know, bad reviews. Then you start thinking, who's been paying these people to put five-star reviews up? Hmm. So, I don't know. Maybe that's helped. Maybe it hasn't helped. I don't know. But um, we we continue to get good reviews. I also continue to price pretty reasonably. Um, Middle of the week is 80 to 90 pounds a night. And then weekends is 130 pounds a night. I did just put up my cleaning cost to 85 pounds a stay, which is controversial. Even I was wondering whether to do that. Um, But Airbnb take 15% of the cleaning fees as well, which means I'm making a loss on cleaning. And I didn't want to do that anymore because my cleaners are excellent. That flat is always pristine. And I pay roughly £70 a clean, which some of you may gasp at and say, can't believe you pay so much. But I pay for the quality of it. They uh they're connected to my Airbnb. They do. They see everything. They do everything. I'm not normally in contact with them. They'll tell me if there's something wrong. All I do is I simply order replacements or what have you to their office, my cleaner's office, and they go and replace everything. Like, honestly, they couldn't do a better job if they tried. So I don't mind paying £70 a clean, but because Airbnb take 15% of that, I've put that up to £85 a clean. I have had a couple of comments from people saying, whoa, that's quite expensive. But most people overlook it and they continue to book because, again, it's not expensive. You can sleep five people um, in the centre of town, you know, for between 80 and £130 a night. So I think keeping the cost consistent, I don't tend to put that up or down that much. It doesn't really fluctuate. Having reviews for all of those years, you know, getting on this way before the bandwagon had been jumped on means that also I get shown at the top of Airbnb's algorithms and there are algorithms for Airbnb. Uh, you Look at it yourself. Go on Airbnb and try and find your property. Yeah. See whether it comes up first or not. Mm-hmm. That would be a huge judgment call for whether you're at the top of the algorithm or the bottom of the algorithm. It used to be when I would go on Airbnb and search for my flat, it wouldn't come up until you really, really zoomed into the location. But nowadays, if you're just on the overview of Bath, you can see my flat pop up. So I assume that's because there's a huge amount of reviews on there. I've been consistent for the last six years with it, and it does really, really well. I make about £2,000 net a month on that property at the moment, with it being 99% occupancy, which is incredible. You know, that's a small salary just from one property. So I have a lot of success from that. Now, I also own 
you know, other flats that I wouldn't do service accommodation in a similar location. Why? I don't want to outcompete myself. <laughs> Essentially, if I have one that's doing that, I don't need multiple ones doing that. Um, the others still make a nice net 500, 600 pounds a month. So that's just on single lets and I don't have to worry about it as much. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, at the moment, what I'm looking at doing is I'm looking at finance for my business and looking at investment and how we can grow quite quickly there. So what I haven't wanted to do is take out more finance for my own portfolio. So I've been kind of coasting since the Barnstable property. And also I had a baby (laughs) and there was absolutely no way at the end of my pregnancy that I was going to be able to be hunting for properties, running a business and being pregnant. So I've kind of coasted a little bit of my property portfolio at the end of the month, come the end of my financial year, which all my companies run up to the end of April, I will start looking again at what we can do for 2022-2023. But I thought I'd let you know that about my Airbnb. It's nice to celebrate it. Really nice to celebrate it. You think this time two years ago, we were at the start of lockdown and I was thinking, oh my God, what are we going to do? And Luckily, I had quite a few bookings and then I had a long term booking and everything worked out. But I know for a lot of people, that's not the case. So I wanted to share some positive news there for you. Right. We've got a lot to get through, a lot of different news that I want to bring to you. The first thing that I want to talk about is uh, landlords forced to rent out retail units. Have you seen this? Um, So as Part of the levelling up and regeneration bill, what seems to uh, be happening or what seems to uh, be coming into force, which will be unveiled in the Queen's speech next month on Tuesday, the 10th of May, is that landlords on high streets who fail to rent out their properties for up to six months will be subject to mandatory rental of their property through a compulsory rental auction, which will be set up via councils. This is for England only. So all of you who have got uh, landlords, you've got investments outside of that. So you've got investments in Wales or Scotland. This is not for you, but this is for you if you are a commercial uh, landlord with a retail property that is empty on the high street. Now, I don't know what the definition of high street, as always, when these things come out, it's very, very vague, very, very vague. Um, So the whole idea behind this is to revamp high streets and provide accommodation to those that need it and stop high streets from becoming ghost towns. So on the face of it, it seems pretty good. I mean, if one of my commercial units wasn't let out for six months, it would be really nice for someone to come along and let it out for me. But there is a problem. This compulsory rental auction, which means that it could alter the value of the investment. And this is my conundrum and for you listening, have a think about this as well, because I don't know how this is going to upset the apple cart of the commercial market. On one hand, having an auction where 
potential retailers bid on a rent means that you are essentially testing the market to see how much retailers are willing to pay for space, right? So that is a good thing. If you are seeing auctions at the moment for the selling of properties, you're seeing that the market is showing that there's a huge amount of demand from buyers and there's not enough stock coming to the market. So property prices are really being you know, pushed up. But then my thought process is that if you have a property that's on the market for six months and you're trying to achieve a certain rent, and the reason you're trying to achieve a certain rent is because the value of your investments, the value of the property is very much related to the rental income that you get and the, and the strength of the covenant that you put in the property. If you just get any old rent that you haven't strategically thought about and planned for, you could significantly alter the value of your property. And that could, could put you at quite a loss. And that's a risk, right? So let me explain what I mean by this. In that if you have decided that your rental value is worth, I don't know, £10,000 per annum, say, let's, let's make it really easy on ourselves. So the rental value is £10,000 annum, per annum. And you've got quite a stable tenant in there that, you know, would take it on a five-year lease, for example. So maybe then your all risks yield is at about 7%. So the value of that property would be roughly £143,000, right? That's assuming that you're going to get a rent of £10,000 per annum. Um, you've got a good quality tenant in there who has signed a five-year lease. They've put down a three-month deposit, say, and maybe there's a personal guarantee there as well. And they've shown that they've already got a good trading history. So at that point, your retail unit is worth £143,000. Now, Say your property then goes on compulsory rental auction and the rent that is achieved is, I don't know, £7,000. And this is a brand new tenant with no trading history whatsoever. And they take it on for two years. Now, all of a sudden, you've got potentially... £7,000 worth of rent at maybe 11% all risks yield because you haven't got as high rent as you were getting before when you were marketing on the open market and you haven't got the quality of tenant that you would be able to get if you went on the open market. So that £7,000 per annum at 11% all risks yield is makes the value of the property around £64,000. So that's over, that's less than half the value that it was before. So what I hope, and I cannot read the ins and outs, I haven't seen this yet, so I'm going to keep following it. What I hope happens is that the compulsory rental auction is for all tenants, not just small tenants, I, I hope all tenants can get involved, 
that way it really is an open market transaction and that there is a minimum rent. That way, landlords aren't losing value in their property. And also, when uh, the property goes up for a rental auction, there are conditions. For example, regardless of who you are, you have to pay a three or six month um, rent deposit and potentially have a personal guarantee. The landlord should also be able to stipulate what lease terms they want. So maybe a five-year term outside the act. Maybe there's a break clause in there. Maybe there's not. But these compulsory rental auctions would have to be very, very similar to what it's like going to auction at the moment, where everything is put into a pack before the auction happens. And then um, tenants can bid on that rent, but not just the small tenants, the big tenants as well. If that's the case, and that's an open market transaction, then fine, I don't think the landlords stand to, or property investors stand to lose that much. It's when councils are assuming that it's just going to be these small players getting involved um, with no background information that I worry. I really worry about the value of these properties, which, you know, on the one hand, great, spicing up um, the high street, making it more user-friendly. But what we will probably start to see actually is... uh, like they're doing in Bolton right now, where the main shopping centre is being pulled down for more residential um, and leisure accommodation with a little bit of retail. And there's, you know, there's there's a lot of that live work play there going on rather than being solely a shopping area. What we might have to find is that maybe the current high street as it stands doesn't work anymore. Because if you have all these small retailers on a high street who no one knows about, who's going to come and use them anyway? What would be better if, number one, compulsory rental auctions were the open market auctions, but number two, there was a lot more permitted development rights with um, building control input, I really do believe in that. I think building control input is always good because it preserves the quality of buildings. But what I would like to see is for investors to be able to turn their properties into the most needed space at the time, which means that rather than councils forcing properties to be put on auction so that somebody rents them, councils instead look at their town planning and think, hmm, what would be the best possible use for this? And then allow that property to be turned into that best possible use. That's my thought. So let's see what happens. Um, I'd be surprised if landlords aren't up in arms about this. It's very similar to uh, the ground rents where uh, landlords will not allow ground rents to go to peppercorn if they've already been put in place. The reason being is that there's already a contract there. Governments can't really get involved in contracts that have already been put in place and were fair at the time of writing them and say, actually, no, not fair now. Uh, You can no longer claim your income. That's unfair and and 
you know, there's a massive argument that this compulsory rental auction might, might be similar to that in that, you know, landlords bought a property thinking that it was a certain price and all of a sudden changes to legislation have reduced the value of it. I don't know. I don't know. We are yet to be see. We've yet to see what happens, but it's coming. Keep an eye out. Tuesday, 10th of May, we will know more. The next thing I've seen a lot of querying about, are HMO tax bills really quadrupling? Yes. (laughs) Simple. Um, Maybe even increasing by five times, six times, seven times, depending on how many rooms you've got. So what's been happening there? If you've seen that in the news as a headline, usually the headline is landlords face quadrupling council tax bills. This is only for HMO landlords. So it should be HMO landlords could be facing uh, quadrupling council tax bills, whatever they want to say. So Essentially, what does this mean? Well, some councils are reclassifying HMO council tax ratings and rating every room separately. Why? I think this is pretty obvious. They need money. They do need money. Councils are under a huge amount of pressure. So here's where this all happened. And I think if we think back to 2018, if we were blind to the fact that this was going to happen... Um, we would have been a bit silly. Now, this is the reason that I don't have any HMOs in my portfolio. I do not want to get involved with this. Under the licensing of houses in multiple occupation, brackets, mandatory conditions of licenses, brackets, England. So again, this is England, guys. Regulation 2018, which made changes to the Housing Act 2004, which came into effect on the 1st of October 2018, the government made landlords get mandatory licenses for HMOs. In that license, in the document that you had to submit to the councils, landlords had to declare how many rooms they had, the room sizes, and what is contained within each of the rooms. Do they have a small kitchenette, for example? Are they on suites? So you've given all of that information to the council. They now have it on file. They can go round and reband without necessarily even coming out and seeing your property because you as a landlord already declared it, right? So they kind of forced it upon you to give them that information. They're now using that information against you. So where are they doing this? They are doing it for um, properties that have be, have been adapted so significantly that they can't be used as a single dwelling house anymore, um, or where it would be really difficult to turn each HMO room back into um, a regular room and again put it back into a single dwelling house. So essentially, if you have adapted a house structurally or enough where each room has its own kitchenette or shower on suite, so it can't easily be turned back into a single dwelling house, then you are likely to be banded on a room by room basis. If this applies to you, the VOA will write to you, right? There you go. So yes, potentially HMO landlords, watch out for that. It's not happened in... um, 
every council district yet. The big cities have started it, but I assume that if councils see this as a way of collecting revenue, they are going to hurry up the process and go to the VOA and say, come on, we want this with uh, all of our HMOs in our area as well. So it's an easy tax grab for them, really easy tax grab. As I said, you as a landlord already declared it to them. So very easy for them to do it. So thinking about that, where, you know, we have a lot of this, I call it the black market in property, this rent to rent bullshit. Um, Again, I cannot stand rent to rent. I think it is the lazy investors way of owning property. But this will make rent to rent unviable for a lot of um, a lot of can we call them investors? Can we call you an investor? I think you like if you're doing rent to rent, aren't you just a glorified property manager? That's my thoughts. Um, that's why I don't touch it with a barge pole. Um, I th- I just think it will wipe out profits. You know, how can you afford to pay for four or five council tax on each room? You're not actually making that much money on top of all utilities. And then if you're doing rent to rent, you're 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 also paying rent to a landlord. Yeah, I think hopefully. Hopefully that stamps that out because whenever I see HMOs getting bad press, a lot of the time it's from rent to rent landlords. Um, someone in an article I was reading, I think it was a Telegraph article, said that there, you know, not enough um, HMO people were taking a stand. Well, number one, I don't know if any of the HMO trainers know this stuff or bother going and reading it. Um, if you're listening to me and you're a HMO trainer and you're like, Natasha, I knew this. Okay, well, it doesn't apply to you, but I haven't seen anywhere on my Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, HMO trainers getting up in arms about this, which I would have thought you probably should do because this is your livelihood going down the drain. So I think what they're probably trying to do is hide it so that they can still say, that um you know this hmo rent to rent lark is a is profitable i would suggest that you need to watch your expenditure and keep a good eye on this if you are giving information to the government they can use that to tax you so please keep an eye out for changes um i think this this was a very good uh, a very good reminder of the fact that legislation changes a lot. It slips in without you realizing, and more often than not, you have tripped your own self up. Not that you could have done anything about it. It's mandatory licensing. They made you do it. Um, but there we go. This is why they want to tax you. Makes commercial seem so much better, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So that's that's my thoughts around our HMO tax bills really quadrupling. Yeah, potentially. Moving on, the next thing I've seen is from my researching and uh, looking around. I found a hundred percent buy to let mortgage product. <gasps> now, I don't know because I've not tested it. So this is me, um, me kind of saying to you if this is up your street and if someone tests this can you email me natasha at ncrealestate.co.uk and see if this mortgage product works um i was scrolling to the end of a product list at godiva 
Godiva mortgages for a client. And I found a fix, a five-year fixed term at 4.49% with up to 100% loan to value. So if anybody has tried this to see if it is real, please let me know. I would love to have some feedback on that. I don't have any products or any properties that I need 100% product for. But I assume if you're a portfolio landlord, this could be quite useful if you've got equity in the rest of your portfolio. I would assume they're taking a second charge on something. They're going to have to. There is absolutely no way that a mortgage lender could lend um, 100% first charge on just one property. They'll take a second charge on something else, I'm sure. But if you've tested this, please let me know. I want some feedback on it. And then finally, finally, a bit case law for you all. Why you should use a trained professional as founded in Clipper Logistics PLC, who are the tenant, versus Scottish Equitable PLC, who are the landlord. So what is this case law and why is it important? Well, this was a lease renewal, uh, a 1954 Act lease renewal, and it went to trial because the following terms of the lease under the 54 Act renewal couldn't be agreed. So the duration, so the term of the lease, uh, they were arguing over alteration clauses such as compliance with energy performance regs should be included. Um, so whether the lease should be updated with, with that, um, whether an alienation clause should be widened, whether an indemnity clause should be included, or finally, what the new rent and interim rent should be. And this is where it gets really interesting. Okay. So let me give you the key the key points that are interesting. And I'm only looking at the new rent and interim rent. The rest of it was sorted out. Basically, it was, you know, the terms of the old lease. So nothing really exciting there. So we have got Mr. Alderton, who was acting for the tenant. And we've got Mr. Neves, who is acting for the landlord. The passing rent, so the rent in the previous lease was £760,000 a year. Mr. Alderton, who's acting for the tenant, argued that the rent should be £687,000 per year, whereas Mr. Neves, acting for the landlord, was arguing that the rent should be £852,000 per year. That is a massive difference of almost £200,000 per annum, right? Huge. Huge, 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 huge. Um, and so you can see why that went to trial because they are so far apart, £165,000 apart. Now, just to let you know that surveyors at trial should act as experts and present all the evidence and consider all of the evidence in their reporting. So even if you think that the rent should be X, you still need to explain why you are looking at certain evidence and you think that that is more relevant and why you're discarding other evidence. But you have to look at everything. You cannot just pick and choose the things that work best for you at that point. By the time you've gone to court, you're going through the trial, you have to look at everything. And when you're reporting to the judge to present your points, you have to have gone through everything. These reports are massive. They can be hundreds of pages long, right? So as a surveyor, that would be my job to do. Um, and I've certainly done some of these for arbitration. I haven't been to um, trial over a lease renewal touch wood. Um, but I can see why this went because, you know, for 165000 a year, it's worth going. 
Now, Mr. Neves, acting for the landlord, presented a report acting as an expert as he was a trained lease advisory surveyor. Right? Mr. Alderton, who's an agent, not a lease advisory surveyor, did not look at all of the evidence objectively and rather wrote a defensive counter argument, which the judge dismissed because Mr. Alderton was not acting as an expert, instead was just looking at the evidence which he felt was important for defending his rent at £687,000 per annum. Apart from that, he spent a lot of time in his report explaining why he thought the opposition surveyor to not be doing his job properly. Ultimately, the judge decided that the new rent and interim rent should be £852,000 based on Mr. Neve's evidence as to rental valuation. The lesson here in this case law, don't cut corners in the professionals you hire. This tenant has to stomach this rent for the next 10 years, right? Luckily, they have a break at year five, which they could operate. But even that, £165,000 times five equals £825,000 more rent that they were expecting to be paying. All because they hired the wrong person to act on their behalf, who didn't know how to present his report as um, an expert when reporting to the trial. And therefore, the judge wouldn't even look at it. And can you even imagine? So my plea to you as I'm finishing up this podcast, because this is the last point I have to make. If you are acting in commercial property or any property type, please stop cutting corners because it could cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds. You need to be hiring the expert who's going to be going into battle for you and making sure that you get the best. And if they're qualified to do it, they will be getting you the best price. And here, if the tenant had hired a uh, lease advisory surveyor rather than an agent, the lease advisory surveyor would have probably either advised them not to go to court. And if they can afford the new rent, then it's time to move out. Or they would have tried and settled somewhere more reasonable. So at least they could save a little bit of rent. And chances are the landlord probably would have agreed to that. But having a really stubborn um, agent who thought he was right, but actually got it very wrong, has just cost them £825,000. There we have it. Lesson of the podcast, always hire a professional who knows what they're doing. Thank you so much for listening to me today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon. And if you've liked this podcast, don't forget to Rate it if you're on Apple Podcasts. I love reading the reviews that you sent through to me. And make sure you subscribe so that you get this podcast straight into whatever platform you listen on as soon as it comes out. All right, I will speak to you very, very soon. 